Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers. And uh, when when did you say you're not in Hawaii anymore, Bradley? Because uh, I don't yeah. know I don't know how much longer I can I can be on the other end of this. <laughs> it's so it's very late for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have gained a newfound appreciation for every time <laughs> you're like, oh, it's it's ten o'clock my time. It's eleven o'clock my time. I can do this. I'm like, how? How? Because the second I hit eleven thirty or so, my body's like, you're done. You you're out of it. God, I miss my my twink days. Before we dive into today's episode, I've got a few housekeeping things. First and foremost, as we stated last week, but I want to reiterate, Tales of the Jedi has come out. It is all available on Disney+. Plus. We are not going to be talking about it right here. We want to give Andor its due, and then we want to jump over and give Tales of the Jedi its due. And believe me, I have a lot to talk about about Tales of the Jedi. Oh, do you now? I do. Because I really like four episodes of Tales of the Jedi. And we're going to talk about one of those other two. I'm excited. Anyway, but stick with us. We're not going to really cover that. Um, We're going to get to that. We're going to give it its own time in between Andor and the Bad Bat. I also have a uh, contribution, Bradley, for you, for something you said on the show. What did I say? Uh, you were requesting Diego Luna's bare ass, and you will be happy to know that a listener supplied me with some films in which you can see Diego Luna's bare ass. No way. Okay. Okay. So for everybody at home, please tell us, uh, what, what, what we can look up. So, um, I did not obtain this person's permission, uh, to disclose their name. So I'm not going to put them on blast here, but... You know who you are, thank you. But apparently, according to this person, you should start with Wander Darkly, because it's a good movie, and Diego Luna's ass is in it. Uh, And this person stated that, additionally, there's a few Spanish-language films that they haven't seen, but they're told that Diego's ass is in it, including El Buffalo de la Noche and Solo Quiero Caminar, are all films in which you can see Diego Luna's ass. So I needed to follow up on that from our latest episode that we recorded last week. Bradley, of course, is going to go seek out Wander Darkly now. Um, I'm going to go see all of them because that sounds like a fun uh, experiment to just, you know, look for maybe. Yeah, it's it, it's important, Bradley, that you be a man of culture, especially in your profession. It's important you you know a good, solid film when you see one. Absolutely. And you know what? It's, it's just research for, you know, making my work better when I create things later, you know? Exactly. These are important things for you. Uh, Additionally, two quick things I want to point out um, that I thought were pretty cool that came up in the wake of last week's episode. Uh, One is it was revealed. So, you know, those flashback scenes on Ferrex, you know, where the Republic troopers come in and we were talking about like the relationship between the Republic and planets that they occupy. Apparently that is happening a year after Revenge of the Sith. 
Okay. Yeah. So when they're still using the, they haven't phased out the the clone troopers yet, but we're firmly in the empire by this okay, point. So like the it's early, early, early days. Early, early empire. We're within the first year, apparently, is where we're at. I just thought that was cool. It's it's not stated in the episode, but you know, for fun, if you're watching with the same level of detail I am, know that that those flashback sequences are are into the Empire. The average citizen just doesn't know the difference between the Republic and the Empire. And finally, uh, before we move into our next segment, I was listening to our friends at First Steps today. Uh, they actually addressed, they are watching and or now because they are up there in the timeline. Uh, and someone, I think it was Calvin, actually brought up some of the historical stuff that I was talking about in the first three episodes. I particularly brought up the Battle of Blair Mountain as a historical inspiration for what happens in the first three episodes. So for our history-inclined viewers, I wanted to shout out for steps and say, uh, go Google the Battle of Blair Mountain. Apparently that has some uh, parallels to the first three episodes of Andor. All right, Bradley, you know what time it is? What time is it? It's time for me to gush about Mon Mothma's outfit for a solid minute. So we got to see the orange-like outfit uh, and just absolutely stunning, breathtaking. I'm not sure it's my favorite of the dresses so far. I think last week's dress may actually be my favorite. But this one is, this is the one that we saw in those initial trailers and I'm obsessed with it. It's such a radical departure from the whites that we normally see her wear. Uh, I do, actually, I think it may be one of the first times we've seen her in an outfit that doesn't feature white at all, which is very, very cool. Just, I love it. I love the look of it. I love just the elegance of the entire ensemble that she has together. I'm excited to see back a couple of episodes and where her outfits go because we're out of trailer outfits. That was me gushing about the outfit for a solid minute. As you always should. As I always should. I'm correct to do this. Side note, uh, we'll get to it when we get to it, um, but in, in the episode that I didn't like, of Tales of the Jedi. Mon Mothma is in it, and she is wearing a pretty fantastic outfit. Oh, spoiler alert. I haven't watched them all. I didn't know she showed Spoilers. Up. Spoilers. Oh. <laughs> Minor spoilers. Spoiler. Keep your eyes peeled, Bradley. In like two shots, you'll see Mon Mothma. And she will be wearing the only vaguely redeeming thing about that episode to me. I well, said. there is a couple. It's nuanced and we'll get there when we get there. But uh, spoilers. It, it tells the Jedi is going to get spicy. This week, we're talking about Andor episode eight titled Nakina 5. The Empire catches up to Cassian, but as of yet, unaware of his identity and past. Charles, what's one thing you liked about the episode and one thing you did not? One thing, I, oh, the casting of Andy Serkis was the one thing I liked. Absolutely fucking inspired. Spoilers uh, for for who shows up in this episode, but uh, yeah, the casting of Andy Serkis, absolutely fucking inspired. The man is incredible. He's an incredible actor. He really just knocks it out of the park every time he's in a Star Wars. And watching the clickbait articles scramble to be like, oh, 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 we finally have something we can write for Andor. We finally can do it. Has been absolutely 
delightful to me. One thing I didn't like, and it's going to be the same thing. It's, it's, it's going to be the same thing every time we get into an arc. This episode ends on such a downer note, and it, it really feels like it wants us to move on to the next episode. I've gotten a little pushback this week with people starting to say, well, I've settled into liking the fact that we have to have a week to marinate on the episodes. And I get that I do. You know, so that's a perfectly valid opinion to have. I would never say to somebody, you know, your opinion is wrong when it comes to something like that. But for me as a viewer, I always have to brace myself for the end of these arc episodes of like, it's just going to cut off. And not only did this one cut off, it cut off on such a dark note too, that I really walked away from this episode feeling kind of, because it's also an incredibly dark episode. It, it may be one of the darker ones except for maybe episode five but it's it's a very dark episode what with the the labor camp and the prison imagery and it, we'll get there when we get there but yeah it's the episode ending it's got to be that ending again what about you bradley one thing you liked and one thing you did not um for me um i think i l- i really liked uh, the scene with cinta and bell um maybe it's just because the word love was thrown out there so i don't know maybe that's just why i like that one oh my god um i i don't know maybe that's what it was um but i i kind of agree with you on the i didn't like part is it just yeah we need like the second episode like you know what i mean we need the third episode or whatever the arc is we need it like i i just can't i don't like watching the andor show without the full arc and i get what you're saying too like it's valid to like like a week-to-week show but when it's created in a way that's clearly meant to be watched all at once it's kind of like mm, like just give us the next episode or do a double release every week or whatever you know what i mean yeah and i get with some things like episode seven that maybe that wouldn't work but i mean in general for the three episode arcs i really have been saying that i wish that it had been three episodes every three weeks I really do. I think that it would have been, it would have given us plenty of time to digest it. It would have given people time to watch it, but. But they got to, you know, stretch it out because. They got to stretch get... it out because, because cable TV did weekly releases and that's how they keep it in, in the public consciousness. <sighs> that's what they're releasing. Like, this is a problem that a bunch of things are running into. Yeah. Like a whole bunch of shows right now and or Rings of Power, not so much House of the Dragon, uh, but a lot of these shows feels like they were designed to be binged. Yeah. They weren't designed to be week to week shows. And I was I was having arguments with people halfway through Rings of Power. I was like, I guarantee you this is going a place. Yeah. I recognize setup when I see it. But yeah, it's 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 kind of shooting itself in the foot for me. It feels like we're getting one third of a movie every week. Yeah, and I don't like that because I want the full movie. Like if I'm gonna watch a two hour movie, like let me watch it. Like don't, you know, don't short me on the episode. Like this is clearly like well, in Andor's case, you know, every arc is a three hour movie. And so it's like, let me watch that three hour movie. Don't cheat me of the ending every single week. And I also feel like too, the argument of it's, you know, it's what it keeps it in the public consciousness. Doing something like doing three episodes every three weeks or something. And I get that the show is not structured that way. And I was making these arguments back when we thought it was going to be four three episode arcs. But I mean, the thing about Andor is Andor is really hard to talk about. And you're not getting clickbait articles out of Andor. You're not getting a lot of negative coverage out of Andor. It 
I don't think it really would have diminished it that much to maybe stretch the release out a little bit. Yeah, I think so. We begin on Niamos. Cassian and other prisoners are herded onto various prison transports. He is ordered to board a transport heading to Narkina 5. Cassian and his fellow prisoners are ordered to remove their shoes and have their hands shackled to their seats. Meanwhile, on Coruscant, Cyril is working at the Imperial Bureau of Standards. When he is visited by two Imperial Security Bureau officers, Cyril is greeted in an interrogation cell with Lieutenant Deidre. She seeks Karn's assistance in filling gaps about the Ferex incident. Yeah, so the soundtrack for the first four episodes release, I believe, it, it released maybe a week or two ago. Uh, I I listened to it this week, uh, and I can 100% confirm uh, that they are changing the intro music every episode because Absolutely. on the soundtrack it's listed and or intro episode one the music from episode one and or oh, wow. intro episode two the music from episode that's two that's awesome so i can confirm i was 100 percent right about that well it makes sense i mean i like i do actually like how it changes because it does set the tone every time. it keeps me on my toes it's like right from the beginning i never know what to expect each week so the other planet one of the other planets that they're gesturing the prisoners to is a planet called Belsavis. Belsavis, we have heard of Belsavis before, particularly if you were a Star Wars The Old Republic player. In Star Wars The Old Republic, Belsavis was a prison planet. Um, I believe it was brought back into canon a little sooner. This is going to be the thing Charles didn't research. I believe it was brought back into canon as of Light of the Jedi. Let me see. Apparently it's older than Star Wars The Old Republic. Uh, it, it showed up in some of the EU novels, but it's primarily in Star Wars The Old Republic. It's a prison planet. Let me double check. Uh, yes, it was recanonized in Light of the Jedi, uh, but here it is being explicitly identified as a prison planet. Uh, in Star Wars The Old Republic, basically it was Space Australia. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you know the... Do you know your history of places that are not America, Bradley? Oh, I, know you I see through, what you're I know saying. I know you went through the Southern public education system. Yeah, see, that's why I was confused for a second, because I was like, it's Space Australia. That's weird. That's such a random yeah, thing. Now I understand go, what They used saying. to go dump prisoners from, from England over in Australia. Gotcha. Yes, I did know thing. that. I did know that vaguely, but yes. Yes. So that's uh, that's a nice little reference. It was also funny because I was mentioning Belsavis from the Old Republic as being a very traumatizing planet to level on back in the day when the Old Republic came out and then literally it was mentioned immediately in Andor. Well, I mean, Did... this entire episode was kind of traumatic anyway. So... I mean, this episode <laughs> I mean, was trauma sense. from beginning to end. This episode right. is about trauma. <laughs> so the guy in the shuttle with them, did you think that was the guy from uh, Linus Mosk from episodes two to four? Oh, no, I don't think so. The guy who's shouting at them in the shuttle. Like, if you go back and look at it, it, yeah. it looks a lot like the same guy. Okay, I'd have to go back it's, and watch it. It's not. Episode. It doesn't appear to be, but he's also not credited. Oh, okay, well. So, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that's nice. That that guy got a, uh, got a new job. But no, apparently it is a different guy. Shout out to Diego Luna's face. I mean, one, just generally, because Diego Luna is a very attractive man. I was like, why? Because he's the he's on the show. Like, I'm I mean, this is going a place. I <laughs> okay, where's it going? Well, because the thing about Diego Luna is Diego Luna is a very good actor. And we don't need to be told what's happening mentally to Cassian right now. We can watch it in Diego Luna's 
face as he realizes, yes, he is actually going back to prison. And the key word there is back. Because if we remember from his conversation with Skeen, Cassian has been thrown into prison before. He served time when he was a teenager and then got dumped on Mimbit. So the rising panic in Cassian's face, there's a few times I'm going to note just how good Diego Luna's acting is, just not even vocally, just with his physical facial features. It's so good. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think what this episode does continuously throughout the episode is it makes you feel that, like, fear of, like, I have no control over the situation that's happening to me right now, and, like, I don't know what's going on, essentially. I mean, he knows he's being taken to prison, but it's like, a like, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what's happening, I don't know, like, it's very much confusion and chaos, which is a way... You can control people, obviously. Um, I just find that it's, it, it's fearful. I don't know. The whole episode gave me like anxiety half the time. <laughs> I mean, it it should. It's a very anxiety-inducing episode. This is not a happy arc of episodes. It's probably one of the darker arcs we're going to get in the show. No, and I, I don't want to talk about my life experiences too much. And no, I've never been to prison. But I have been in a similar situation to this. And the way that it shot, like, with the constant shots of his... So the shots of the bare feet. We're going to talk about the bare feet later. But the bare feet, like, the shots of the bare feet to reinforce, like, just how vulnerable Cassian is. The way that Diego Luna is acting, like, his facial features, the production design of it, making everything white and sterile. And, like, all of that, some of the imagery that's used later, like, it's it's horrifying. It's horrifying the way that everything comes together. And this first scene in the shuttle is our first indication, like, our first start of the rising of realizing where this is going. The scene between uh, Deidre and Cyril is literally everything I wanted from these two characters meeting. I was very happy with the way that this went down (laughs) um i wanted to point out something really hilarious that i noticed while making my notes for this scene so whenever i get my notes every every single time um i write down (laughs) isb it literally i'll spell out imperial security bureau and i wanted to know that cyril is working at the imperial bureau of standards which is ibs and the contrast there with the hold on, ISB hold on. and IBS. I just hold thought on. it was really funny. Shut shut up. You mean to tell me that Cyril Karn, the man with the most toxic bottom energy on this show, works at the IBS? Yup. I know. I it's not lost on me, the irony. I I tr- I promise you. I need to compose myself. I am a professional podcaster. I will not spend two solid minutes at the thought of the most uptight, tight-assed twink in the entire show working at the fucking IPS. Jesus Christ. I, I, you know, I don't know where it comes from. I just, I just noticed these things and it's just, I was connecting to Serial in this moment, obviously. (laughs) Well, well, yes, yes. Oh, holy shit. I think there's something sort of important to to note here, uh, which is one thing we're learning about the writing of this show, and this will definitely continue in on to, to season two, everything is important in some way. All the way back when they had the scene of Blevin being like, here's the reports, sign them, fuck off. Do you remember that scene? So he has Hines and Cyril and Moss lined up in his in the office in episode four. 
and it's Blevin. Blevin has just come in and he's like, uh, the Empire is taking over. We are relieving you of duty. You're fired. Get the fuck out. You will not pack your shit up. Here's right. an ISB after action report. Don't read it. Sign it. Apparently that line of dialogue was kind of important because it comes up again here. The fact that Cyril hasn't actually read the report. And Deidre is quickly learning that Blevin didn't handle Ferrix very well at all. He didn't collect an actual after action report that included the details that she needed to know. He didn't, he basically just dropped a garrison in there and was like, y'all make sure nothing happens. Like we are quickly seeing how Deidre has to sort of build her own operation essentially up from nothing very, very quickly. And we also see she's under, we'll see in a, another scene, she's also in a lot of pressure, under a lot of pressure to deliver. Up next, the Imperial Prison Transport descends into the atmosphere of Narkina 5. Back on Coruscant, Deidre delivers her full report and briefs the audience about Andor. Deidre believes that Andor was trying to connect with a person codenamed Axis, whom she thinks is central to the organized rebel effort. Deidre plans to search for Andor on Ferrix as part of a wider hunt. So very quickly, uh, Narkina 5 is new, has not appeared in, in canon or legends before. Uh, that's why Bradley included that little section about the ship flying flying into Narkina 5, so that I could say that. That. That fact. Uh, timeline is a little bit weird. Uh, I, I probably need to, uh, look at, uh, our friend Emily at your weird Aunt Emily and, and see where this falls. Uh, because Deidre mentions the box having been stolen from Steergard, quote, last year. Right. So I'm like, did Cassian steal the box and then he's just been sitting on it this whole time? I mean, I guess that would make sense if it's something like that he does talk about how like how important or valuable this thing is so i guess it would make sense that like if he were to pinch it you know immediately after stealing it he would have gotten caught so i guess waiting a long time would make sense unless we just have the timeline wrong and what she's talking about is like something else i don't know yeah it's like how how long was he on uh niamos is the planet name niamos yeah. he could have been there for a few months we don't know sorry liam um yeah it could have been there a couple of months a, a standard galactic gear could have had i don't know i think the implication is meant to be that he's been sitting on the box for a while and then when he shoots those two primar guys he immediately needs to offload it and get off the planet i wanted to point that out specifically I also wanted to point out there is a marked difference between the way that Wolf Ularen runs his meetings and the way that Partagast runs his. Now, which one of these would be the worst meeting to be in, Bradley? Well, I, I, I there's two sides of the coin, right? So I feel like uh, Wolf Ularen's uh, meetings are kind of like, meh, boring, like we all have to listen to him kind of thing. And then uh, Partagast is more like, there's going to be some drama during these uh, meetings so i kind of want to be in that meeting versus oh uh, the hands <laughs> down i'd rather be in a part of guest meeting hands down because part of guest lives for the drama oh oh for sure he, he is, lives for he this. loves to pit his people against each other because that gives him life like he loves that <laughs> dude's just like yeah all of you are stupid i'm gonna make you run around each other in circles for my amusement yularen's just like i am bored with having to be here can i go back to the thrawn novels now why am i doing this instead of that deidre is absolutely terrifying though and and i return to this point that i made 
previously uh, on the last episode where I talked about her being the most dangerous of the the rebel hunters uh, because she's the one who's willing to bend and break and adjust her strategy. She's absolutely terrifying the way she just the efficiency of her strategy where she's like immediately susses out what is going on. And we will see later in the episode, her plan starts working where she's like, we need to wait and see if people contact Axis and squeeze him out of them, which also side note, love the code name of Axis. Okay. Why is that? The guy. It it fits it you know the the idea of like an axis something at the center of an organized rebel effort i it also like it's short and sweet and to the point and almost when you say it axis sounds like you're saying someone's name so i could see quote unquote axis taking on like a life of his own and they do know it's a man i did have a note or do they just assume it's a man so i had the same note I was going to say, is this like a subtle indicator of sexism? No. In the after action report, uh, apparently Cyril did report that. Oh, that he was meeting with a man. Also, multiple people saw them together. They saw them on the speeder bike. They saw them in the warehouse. They know that Axis is a man. Back on Narkina 5, Imperial Corrections Officers order Andor and the other prisoners to disembark. The warden informs the prisoners that they have been assigned to an Imperial factory due to their labor abilities. The warden then tells the prisoners that they maintain control over them all by incapacitating them with a painful sonic disruptor right so uh yeah we we need to we need to address something up front here bradley you and me we cannot possibly tell people about every single fucking person yeah no i wasn't gonna try that's introduced i was i I wasn't gonna try highlighted a few yeah but i wasn't we we can't guys there's like especially something not now, like yeah. 20 characters. <laughs> yeah, no, here. we can't. Sorry. There's like eight of them that are going to be like in some way, shape, or form important. Uh, we will get to people that are gonna be important when they turn up and become turn important. Up, yeah. Uh so we are not going to cover ev- I'm sorry. <laughs> Go yeah. to IMDB and look at the cast list. I was gonna there's say just yeah. too many. There's way too many. There's too many. We would be here all night. Uh, I do want to shout out the intake warden, uh, mostly because of his delightfully evil imperial speech. The intake warden is played by Paul McEwen. McEwen? Uh, He was in Peaky Blinders as governor. He was... uh, Okay, so apparently this is a thing. He was in Pennyworth, the TV show. I've seen billboards popping up everywhere for the third season of that, and... And I didn't know that was a thing. But he's also been on TV. I just want to shout him out. His delightfully sinister imperial intake speech. So this is fucking horrifying. This entire sequence. It's it's borderline a torture scene. <laughs> oh, no, it's not borderline. He, he, he flat out is like, we will torture you now. And I want you to remember this, which horrifying which i have to give him props only because this is truly terrifying like this is like a great way to intimidate someone is to be like hey it's kind of like pavlov's dog or whatever it's like you teach them like a learned behavior it's like i'm gonna hurt you and then i'm going to be like okay that's you now you know like don't ever do anything bad because if you do anything bad i'm going to constantly hurt you and it's like it's so it's so good it's like training a dog because the guards at this facility one have clearly developed these strategies over 
prolonged periods of time. And two, do not think of their laborers as people. They think of them as pack animals. Like his beasts of burden, which is horrifying because this is an imperial factory facility. This is a labor camp. And I want to bring up the question of the just the, the where, where we are in the timeline of technology. Like, I'm just very confused as to why even what is the purpose of manual labor in the Star Wars universe? Uh, one very popular fan theory suggests that if you are the Empire and you are building something, something very, very big, something maybe the size of a moon, you may want to delegate some of the labor of building that, the component parts to that thing, which is again, the size of a moon, out to some prisoners, which may also explain why they want to keep those prisoners healthy to do the best job they can. But for efficiency's sake and for a timeline's sake to maybe like, you know, get this thing up and running in a shorter amount of time than 10 plus years uh, or 20 plus years. I don't even know. When did they even start? It was back in Revenge of the Sith. They were constructing it in the last year of the Clone Wars. I think was when they right. they officially began construction on it. Right, but my point is like the, the last year or so of the Clone Wars. But my point is like you literally have sentient robots that live all over the galaxy and like can do whatever you tell them to do, and they you know they don't have feelings, and it's like just make them build it faster for you. Like I don't understand. Yeah, there's issues with using droids, and I think Catalyst goes into this a little bit. There's issues with using droids for everything. There's certain things you want a human brain or like at least a sentient brain to be able to do um like the death star was originally being constructed by the geonosians they were using geonosian slave labor to do it uh and then they switched to using other ways of doing it after stuff happened in catalyst uh but that is one popular fan theory is that they're manufacturing parts for the death star I like it. I mean, it makes sense. It fits. Uh, it fits thematically. It, it fits in the timeline. Yeah. It, it all makes sense. Uh, another theory, which goes back to historical labor camps, and there's a moment, there's a pen that we're going to address the historical labor camp thing. Uh, but there's also another theory that because everything is so uniform and it's, it's always the same, they're mass producing these parts, uh, that the parts aren't really meant to do anything, that they're just meant to keep the prisoners mindlessly working to keep them exhausted. Uh, historically, this has happened in some forms. Usually the intent is basic is to work the prisoners to death. Uh, we see that's not the case here. Uh, so that's not... It, but it is also 100% possible that the prison is designed to keep people who might be physically fit enough to escape a normal prison sentence working long enough. I'm not sure 100% on this one, because we do also see on Wobani in Rogue One, uh, as well as, you know, the same planet and Rebel Rising and stuff, what an Imperial labor camp where they do not care about the survival of their people looks like and it's a marked difference so that's that's just a couple of theories about what might be going on here i wrote down oh yeah 
I wrote down uh, Tungstoid because I thought they said Tungsten. Uh, according to the subtitles, it's a metal called Tungstoid, which I don't know why they couldn't have just said Tungsten. I'm curious now if we've seen Tungstoid anywhere else before. Oh, see. I thought they did say Tungsten. So that's what I thought too, but I was watching with the subtitles. No, it's it's not even got a... a let me check something real quick. Doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page. Doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page. <laughs> it looks like... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not even joking. Oh, there it is. Tungstoid Steel. I wonder why that didn't pop up on Google. I spelled it correct. Uh, Tungstoid Steel is... We have seen it before. It was in the one book in Legends. It was mentioned in Fate of the Jedi. It was just mentioned as being a very, very heavy metal. Uh, and it has been brought into canon in here. So that was my fact I learned as we were recording the show. Tungstoid is a reference to Fate of the Jedi Abyss. Nice. I have written down here, there sure are a lot of shots of Cassian's feet. Um, did Dan Schneider write this episode? <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 Nickelodeon, what? Uh, uh, no, this episode was written and directed by, uh, let me see here, a, a Lord Laris Strong? <laughs> I I don't know who uh who mm. Lord Laris Strong is, oh, but uh that's whoever weird. that is was the, the writer and director of this this episode. Um no, it, it, they serve a purpose. You know, they're not there for no reason. It's it's just something that's been pointed out that's kind of hilarious how many shots of feet bare feet there are in this episode, especially since everybody's talking about feet after that one scene in House of the Dragon. It's just a happy coincidence that, you know, the feet theme carries from House of the Dragon to now Andor. And, you know, honestly, whatever the next big show is, maybe we'll see feet in that too. Just And to... yet, and yet, the one time it would have been appropriate to show us feet, which is in the Rings of Power, which is to show <laughs> us the Harfoot's feet if they have the Hobbit feet. They did not show us any feet. So they put it in House of the Dragon. They put it in Andor. But the people behind Rings of Power were wise enough not to take that bait. Yes, they indeed, indeed. Back on Coruscant, Cyril has finished reading Lieutenant Blevins' report. He informs Deidre of several omissions. Deidre also questions Karn about the description of Andor's accomplice. In return for Cyril not filing any more requests for information, Deidre promises to tell the Bureau of Standards that he was of good service the Empire today. Deidre warns him not to raise the ISB's attention and forget this ever happened. Cyril really does think the Empire cares about maintaining order on Ferrix. He's so dumb. I can't. That's, that's <laughs> something that's so interesting to me because like it directly comes, it's, it's the conflict between Cyril, who's an idealist, who wants the Empire to represent order, the ultimate order in the galaxy, and Deidre, who's a realist and knows what the Empire is actually doing. They're not there for order. They're there to maintain their own they're there to maintain galactic order and if they have to run over ferrix or leave ferrix to burn they're gonna do it he just he just can't take no for an answer like it clearly it's gonna come back to bite him clearly because oh we can, yeah i can i can see the wheels turning in his head he's like she's telling me no but is she telling me no she's well, probably just is, saying yes <laughs> well here's the thing cyril is also very dangerous because again, he doesn't understand the word no. And he really genuinely believes in the concept of order above, I think, even the Empire. I think he wants to see the Empire as the ultimate example of order in the galaxy, but that's not the case. 
Yeah, he has this air about him of like he's un—he's growing more unhinged, slowly but surely. But in like a very specific way, where it, it looks like he's becoming more hinged, or he thinks he's becoming more hinged. He I, really is leaning into that Inspector Javert thing. Well, you know, he's—he makes me think of. I think what I think the direction they may be going with this is that he thinks he's doing the right thing and he's maintaining order, or whatever he's doing, and that is going to be the hindrance to Deidre and her success is that oh. he's going to get in the way of her. Like, I love that. Even though he thinks he's doing the right thing and he thinks he's helping, he's going to somehow ruin all of her plan by trying to help her essentially i love that i i absolutely and i agree with you i think that's because we see overwhelmingly you know a theme over and over and over and over and over, constant times in star wars the heroes work together they have teamwork they have unity they have a, a, a vision they're all striving for whereas the villains are always stepping over each other they're like crushing each other underfoot for their own ambition and that is part of the reason that they always lose at least ultimately in at the Narkina 5 prison, Cassian is led into his factory floor. He is greeted by a fellow prisoner named Kino Loy, who is the manager of the unit. Loy tells Andor the prisoners are competing against each other and the other floors. He emphasizes that he wants to maintain a high level of productivity and tells Andor to come to him if he has any problems with the other inmate or is sick. At table five, Cassian meets his fellow inmate. So before we, we get down into the main room, uh, I want to talk about real fast or I want to note the segregation of the guards from the prisoners that the guards never interact with the prisoners except to bring in new people or take out old people that's it and I think that's creepy and I think that's extremely corporate and weird to have it be that way and I also I feel like that's going to factor into later episodes too the fact that the guards what was that was it was it Arkham Asylum that I played that toyed around with this idea I don't know Anytime they separate guards from prisoners is a bad idea. Right, because then it's like that that breeds escapism, I guess. Like, I don't know, or those like planning and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, like, I think it's something that's, it's a design choice in the way this, this prison is designed that's going to come back to bite. Yeah, I, I, I see, I see the writing on the wall here, and all you have to do is take out the thing that's causing them to be pained whenever they touch the floor, right? So, like, if you take that away, there's nothing stopping them from leaving. If you can disable that, yeah, yeah, you're good. And at that point, yeah, because the guards are, like, distant, and they're basically treating, they don't have to be like engaged at all with the prisoners they don't have to be on their toes they don't have to be watching them there's a lot that can go unnoticed because of that disconnect and it goes to show the arrogance of the empire that they're like oh i bet these guards thought this was a really cushy assignment speaking of uh down in the room as we move down in the room uh, we meet uh, the the overseer of the floor, Kino Loy. Bradley, would you like to tell us who is playing Kino Loy, even though we said it earlier in the episode? Kino Loy is being played by uh, Snoke. Um, he mm-hmm. is hot. This is him as a human um, before he gets all fucked up later on. Uh, in no, Force screen rant. No, do not <laughs> run with this, even though I know you already did. <laughs> it is not Snoke. <laughs> Apparently, uh, it is because obviously if you use screen rant logic uh this is snoke before he becomes evil and messed up something cassian do- 
does to him in the next two episodes turns him into Snoke, obviously. And that is your Screen Rant article bit for the day. <laughs> I've literally seen that Screen Rant article. I, I literally just, they could they could have just paid me to write it. And I would have like just I, made up I shit know, as I went along. I know for a fact that that existed because I had to see it. Yeah. So uh, Andy fucking Circus, if yeah. you somehow. Yeah, don't know who that is. Are not aware who Andy fucking Circus is. Let me read you off a few, just a few of his acting credits. He is Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He is Alfred in the Batman. He is um, Ulysses Claw in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, I was hunting for a Disney film, but I didn't see one. Uh, he is Caesar in three of the Planet of the Apes movies. And then, of course, in episodes seven and eight of the Star Wars sequel trilogy, he did play Supreme Leader Snoke. This right. dude is a mocap acting legend. And what's funny about him, too, like you said, there isn't a Disney thing on there, which is very strange. No, um, can't, couldn't find one. Looking couldn't for something. Find a single one. Because someone asked me about that earlier. They were like, hey, does he have a Disney trifecta? And I was like, surprisingly no. no bizarrely he does not the one person you think would have one does not and so he actually falls into an interesting category because he plays two different star wars characters uh yeah, we don't have a lot basically, of basically well it it happens occasionally mainly with voice talent right a lot of time you get voice talent playing different roles so you have like john favreau who's the voice of pre one of the characters in solo and Paz Vizsla in The Mandalorian. Right. Like a lot of times you get it, but very rarely do we on screen get a, an actor playing two different roles in the Star right. Wars universe. Star Wars and Marvel, both. It's very, very rare. rarely. Very rare. Very rare. Yeah. Andy fucking Circus is here. Uh, I love that they have prisoners running the other prisoners, thus creating a hierarchy and breeding resentment amongst them. That's horrifying. Classic, also, classic tactic. No, it is a classic tactic of, of historical labor camps, too. And again, that pen is going to stay in because we're not quite to where I want to bring it up yet. Uh, but that is a common thing that if you you elevate somebody pointed it out and there has also been a lot of comparisons between the the prison in this episode of the american prison system as it currently exists uh most people have had their exposure to it through orange is the new black and we also we see this there uh with kate mulgrew's character in the first season of orange is the new black in particular but you also see instances of prisoners getting put in charge of areas of the prison and hierarchies forming and and that's done deliberately so this is this is an incredibly common thing the writer of this episode is excellent and we will get to who wrote this episode at the end of it before we move on however cassian has gone over to his table and there are three people that i want to mention at cassian's table oh you want to mention three i only had two because i thought i was like there's way too many people which at the two table. did you pick which two <laughs> did you pick okay and then um, i'll tell you the the one I'm missing? The one you're missing. Because I know two uh, two of ours are definitely the same. Yes. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about the the oldest one. It, or it looks to be the oldest one. We'll I know him. where this is going, and I okay. have the same person on my list. Right. Okay, so this character's name is Olaf. Um, he is played by Christopher Fairbank. He is a Disney trifecta. Yep, uh, that's first why one I have him episode. written down. So he was in Pirates of the Caribbean and Guardians of the Galaxy. So there you go. The one guy that uh, 
because I, I know who the other guy you're going to talk about okay. is. Okay, so talk about I the, the one I know that, I did. I, I do want to mention that uh, Tom Reed, who's one of the people at the table, uh, who is playing the character of Taga, was also in the terrible 2013 Dracula show. Uh, okay, I, I almost brought him up, but I knew like the Dracula thing was going to like be I wrote thing, it down so because like... this is going to be my thing to yeah. bring up Dracula okay. again. He was also in that terrible show, which I might have to go back and revisit after this is done. Yeah, because they're all all these people are popping up from that all show. People are so. popping up from the show and I'm like, well, yeah, maybe I should revisit this fucking terrible show, which in fairness is not as bad as BBC's Netflix's Stephen Moffat's Mark Gatiss's Dracula on netflix okay talk about the last guy at the table the important guy so the last guy i didn't recognize this person until i had to look it up i i don't know if you already knew who oh it was. immediately oh, you did immediately, okay i did not know immediately when i i heard the name okay even though we just watched rogue one i still did not know um so the other guy at the table that is important his name is uh or the actor is duncan Powell. he plays the character of melshi um he is the same he playing he's playing the same character that he plays in the movie Rogue One. Um, and so this is the, I guess, the time where they meet each other for the first time in prison. <laughs> yep. Uh, Duncan Powell has a, a pretty impressive list of credits. He's in the Halo TV series that just came out. He's in an uncredited role in Dune. He's done some video game voicing. He's done some TV work. He's had an interesting little career, but he is back as Melshi. Yes. Uh, my last note here is I want to I want to mention how good of a choice it is, I think, to have no flashbacks to Cassian's time in prison, because it would have been very easy for us to continue the flashback from the other episodes. Uh, but we didn't do that here. Do you think that's because they're going to do it next episode? I don't think so. No, you don't know. Well, what, do you think think the, so. what do you think the arc is here? Well, I I. I think the arc is a prison break, but I think they're not going to show us Cassian. I think they're going to trust Diego Luna's acting and the directing by the director of this episode to tell us everything we need to know. I see. I we see. don't need to see Cassian get rescued from Canari the way we needed to see it in the first three. We don't need the visual punch of the shot of Clem creaking on the rope in the square while Cassian attacks the clone troopers. That's not necessary here. And one thing that I want to shout out is this show does everything with a purpose. If it's showing you a flashback, it's showing you a flashback for a reason. And if it's not showing you a flashback, it's not showing you a flashback for a reason. You can't avoid the next scene forever, Bradley. I mean... <laughs> you have to You have to bring us in to the next scene of which I have uh, one, About two, three, notes. four, five, six, seven, eight, <laughs> nine notes. Okay. Well, what's interesting about the next scene before I even do the little intro is how it like parallels the separate lives of Mon Mothma and Cassian. It's just like a very interesting how they go back and forth between them. Um, they just keep flashing back. Anyway, that's I just wanted to bring that up before you go on a rant about Mon Mothma. I just had to like pluck that little thing. It, it was a very astute observation. Uh, please take us into the scene. I have many notes. On Coruscant, Senator Mon Mothma has drinks with her husband. The couple are joined by Te Coloma. After Perrin leaves, 
Tay warns that the Empire's new banking regulations are hampering their operations. Mothma and her ally senators discuss Emperor Palpatine's new laws. Mothma tells her guests that she became a senator at the age of 16, and per Chandrillan custom, she was married at a young age. On Narkina 5, Andor and the other prisoners queue up. The inmates brief Andor about how his cell works. Jembok reveals that the Imperial authorities doubled everyone's sentences, and following the events of Aldani, after a few shifts, Cassian adjusts life in prison. Okay, so we're going to jump back and forth between the Mon Mothma. He, Bradley, what he did, I, I I was waiting for him to finish, is he he kind of took the two Mon scenes and put them together, and he took the Cassian scenes and put them together. We're not going to do that. My notes are going to be in sequential order. So uh, I, I like that we're seeing some more Chandrillan culture here. And Chandrill has historically been pretty underrepresented, despite the fact that the leader of the rebellion comes from there, and Ben Solo was born on Chandrilla. So it is nice to see some more Chandrillan culture. They seem to be a very traditionalist people, a very intensely cultural people. And I think that is very cool. Perrin is referred to as being the Academy firebrand, which I thought was very funny. I need to know what that means. Uh, was Perrin always like this? And just people were more tolerant of it when he was a teenager? Or did Perrin used to be like super political? What happened here? I'm going to say no. I, I don't know. No, I think he might have been a rebel, you know, at a young age and then kind of like toned down his kind of hot headedness or whatever when he got to be an adult. Now he just enjoys parties. <sighs> Speaking of his parties, um, I do love the the line from Tay, charity begins at home. The little parting shot on the way back. I did love that line. And I wanted to shout it out. Um, uh, my next note is, yay, banking regulations. I roll emoji. I roll emoji. I want, I, listen, I want to thank this arc for giving me, particularly the Mon Mothma content, for giving me all the content that I specifically want and no one else does. Exactly, because no one else wants that. <laughs> I was like, you're deafening silence there for a minute. Oh, you have nothing to say about banking regulations, Bradley? You the want Trade to know Federation about the and the banking Imperial plan. auditors that are being put on top of the... Lita Mothma has shown up again. I want to say some interesting things that I learned about Lita Mothma. Okay, good, because I'm getting really tired of her showing up and doing the same scene every single time of I'm being introduced and then I need to go ask mom something and then I leave. I come in. Dad needs to go talk to you. I leave. Like I don't know. It's just well, really they've done weird. it twice in a they've done it twice in a row. Yeah, it's weird. And well, I think it's it's supposed to reinforce once again, we saw in her very first scene. She basically told Mon, like, you have no time for me except when it, it's to your benefit. And we are seeing that Mon is paying to a lot of uh, paying attention to a lot of things at this party, but Lita's getting overlooked. Like she tries to introduce Lita to Tay again, and Lita kind of jumps in before she can do that and be like, Yes, we've we've met. Yep. I remember. Literally like last night at the other party, you know, or however long ago the other party was. Well, it's been it's been it's been a while. It's been, you know, at least several weeks since the events of the last party. Uh but a couple of things I learned about Lita that were interesting. Um, she is 13 years old in this series. You muted. Okay, so that means in real life she's 25. 
What? I'm just going by like the high school play. Oh, by, the like, adults rule. Yes, obviously, <laughs> obviously they cast her with a 30 obviously. year old. Right, she's obviously 45. <laughs> no, she's apparently 13 in this. Okay. Um, and Lita Mothma is not a canon invention. She was from Legends. She was apparently mentioned in in Legends very, very briefly. Didn't you say something about how Mon Mothma has a son or something? She has a son in Legends who died okay. at uh, Hoth. And Mon learns about her death. Or Mon learns about his death shortly before she gives the speech. Uh, but yes, Lita Mothma, I'm quoting directly from Wikipedia here. Uh, Lita Mothma. Uh, Mon Mothma's daughter was first mentioned in the Dark Empire source book written by Michael Allen Horn, published in 1993 by Western Games. I was about to say the year you were born. <laughs> uh, her first name of Lita was confirmed in the 2002 reference book, The New Essential Guides to Characters by Daniel Wallace. Uh, let's see, I'm just reading the rest to see if there's interesting. Uh, in the Ask the Master section of the magazine Star Wars Insider 82, author Pablo Hidalgo was asked about Lita Mothman, who her father was. Hidalgo acknowledged her previous mentions and histories, but commented that the name Lita Mothma had not been used canonically. He stated this information made room for the possibility that Lita was born out of wedlock, as no source has confirmed whether Mon had married. The name Lita Mothma was then confirmed in Jobin's entry in 2008's The Complete Star Wars Encyclopedia. Okay. So I feel like they need to take that history and then do a son storyline. Mon Mothma has a son out of wedlock. So like Lita can be her, like her actual, you know, child with parent. And then she has like a affair with Tay Coloma. And then that son is uh, the illegitimate child slash quote unquote bastard <laughs> uh, that we love to talk about on these shows. Yeah, Perrin and, and Lita are pretty sus of Tay too. Like I'm getting the vibe that they're starting to ask some questions. Which, uh, really hoping that we we aren't going to have like a, a, like, you're having an affair conversation, but like, that also might be the direction this is going. Well, because I thought about that too, when she introduced him, she was just kind of like, oh, this is Tay, my old friend Tay or whatever. But like, she didn't act like, oh, this is actually your real father kind of thing. You know what I mean? How she would act really awkward if that was true. I don't know, but they could theoretically be going in that direction. And that's why Perrin doesn't like him because he knows the truth or something. Like, it's no, weird. Like, I don't think that's it. Because they, they haven't seen each other. No, here's so here's my theory. Here's where I think it's going. I think Lita is getting suspicious that her mother is having an affair. And Lita okay. is going to do something or talk to Perrin and Perrin's going to do something. Because again, it'll be a mirror of Bix and Tim in the first three episodes. And unlike Bix and Tim, this is going to have a lot more far-reaching consequences if someone goes sniffing around what Mon and Tay are doing, thinking there's something going on there. Oh, I see what you're saying. She thinks they're having an affair when in actuality, it's her hiding the rebellion from Perrin. And it's right. like, it's going to blow up in their face. I see. I see, I see. Right. That's, I, I'm hoping they don't go that route. I trust them to be slightly more clever than that, but it is a mirror of what happened with Tim. Okay, so at the end of her first sequence, Mon goes over and talks to uh, a shorter gentleman. Uh, did you catch that name? And do you remember where you've heard it before? Of course you fucking don't. Why am no, I asking you? That is Senator Dow. Senator Dow is at the end of episode six when Mon is giving her speech 
And she talks about Senator Dow's package being a more moderate legislation to handle the Gormans. This is that Senator Dow that proposed that legislation that she was giving a speech in favor of in episode six. Uh, wow, you pay really close attention to these. <laughs> See? I, I screwed, deleting notes. Nine notes I have for just this first half of this first scene, and I'm deleting notes. Uh, also, Senator Dow is played by a gentleman named Hugh Sachs. Hugh Sachs has also been recently seen in Bridgerton. If you're a fan of Bridgerton, he is Brimsley. I don't know who that is because I've never seen Bridgerton. Uh, my my notes for the next Cassian section are, and I will read both of them, again, no guards, and again, Cassian trauma. I, I, I Honestly, all the prison scenes made me so uncomfortable this episode. I was just like... Which they should. That's the point. No, they definitely should. It just made me not want to watch the episode <laughs> because they well, were so the, you're not alone in that i've i've heard the same stuff and and honestly like even i was the same way i there were points of the episode where i was uncomfortable watching it and that's the point this is not a show that's this is the darkest arc of the show so far it is not designed to make you feel good it's designed to make a point about prison labor and about authoritarian labor camps. Not going to make you feel good. I mean, you know, that's what exactly when I wake up every morning, I want to turn on Disney Plus and watch my favorite show about labor camps. Yep. That's why I turned on the 2020 Mulan movie. What? <laughs> Do you hear about this? So I'm going to be critical of the Disney Corporation. Um, allegedly, oh, uh, oh, and I, oh, I cannot oh. present any of this uh, with with any degree of fat but yeah so apparently they shot that movie extremely close to actual labor camps in china and they got a lot of criticism for that yeah i, I which was correct those. yes okay i believe so uh this is i was sliding in my opportunity to be critical of uh the walt disney corporation for uh their actions in filming the milan movie Speaking of things that made me wildly uncomfortable. So they jump back to the Mon party and Mon is having a conversation with some senators that I, I refer to in, as the, knife out, the Knives Out conversation. Okay. Bradley, you've seen Knives Out, right? Yes, I have seen it. You know the scene in Knives Out where they're talking about Donald Trump and they never say his name anywhere, but it's the white family and they're sitting around in like the room with the fireplace and they're having a conversation, they're having a political argument about Trump, but they never actually say Trump's name. That was the exact vibes that this scene gave me where they're talking about Palpatine because they're literally sitting here going, oh man, you know, he just, he says what he means and i'm like this conversation is <laughs> not about palpatine <laughs> this is not about palpatine mon sitting here desperately trying to hold her own like oh well you know what does your definition of protection mean exactly and then the guy's like oh i'm just here to drink your wine right i'm doing real it's politics a very over uncomfortable here. scene <laughs> super uncomfortable uncomfortable in a good way though back over at the prison uh i noted here that again we're jumping back and forth because uh, you're going chronologically uh we are doing a lot of exposition in this first first episode of the arc and i do want to bring that up as a point not quite in this episode's favor but in the show's favor it's doing a lot of explaining up front everything that we need to know going 
going into this episode. Uh, I also noted down here where it talks about, you remember that bit where they're talking about, oh, they want to keep us fed. They want to keep us healthy. Yeah, it's because the prisoners are just workhorses. And you want to keep your beasts of burden healthy. You don't want to feed them slop. You want to make sure they're getting nutrients. It also is doing this psychological thing where that you're making them almost feel like they're doing something important too. You're like, oh, well, well, clearly, you know, the empire is not all bad. Because... You're working off your debt to society. Right. The empire yeah. could have just thrown you in a hole, but they're giving you a chance they're to contribute chance. to the public order. Fuck you, the empire. I also, I also made a note of how many days. So Cassian has a sentence of 2,189 days at the start of this. Uh, and I did check, and that is in Earth time. Just a little under, like, it's like a day under, day or two under uh, six years. So it is the exact amount of time that he was sentenced to. There is an interesting exchange that happens in this scene where the prisoners, so it turns out that shortly before, the prisoners all had their sentences doubled. And they're like, oh, I bet people in the galaxy are talking about this and they're pressing Cassian about it. One, it turns out Cassian has no idea what they're talking about. Two... No one is talking about it. No one cares because they're not the ones in prison. Right, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect me, so why do I care? Exactly. Which is another little subtle commentary on life under fascism that a lot of times with the populace, it's like nobody talks about these laws that are going into place because it doesn't affect them. They're too busy surviving on their own. That's how fascism keeps people crushed down under their boot heels by keeping them so focused on themselves. There's an excellent video game that I, I hold up as sort of the er example of this. It's called Papers, Please. And in Papers, Please, you play a Soviet, Soviet-ish border guard. And you you basically consistently have to make choices between doing the right thing and feeding your family. And the point of the game is that under an authoritarian boot heel, that it becomes more and more difficult to do the right thing because the question is, what does doing the right thing become? And this scene was an indicator that for a lot of people in the empire, they're concerned about what affects them personally. As long as the empire's various tightening grips don't affect you, you don't care. There are, however, no politics in Star Wars. Back at the Mon Mothma party, which I, I think this is the end of the... Um, oh, nope. the bit, yeah. The, 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 the bit. I love <clears throat> that they don't look out their own window. So, like, the Moth, the, the Mothma, like, Fritha family is this incredibly privileged family with one of the most beautiful views, and they don't look out it ever. They don't think about it. They don't realize what they have. It's, it's such a nice little, nice little indicator of their privilege. Okay, so we do get ex explicitly stated in the text that Mon and Perrin was like a political, cultural type deal. The marriage. Right, right. It was just a thing that you did at that age via Chandrillan culture. Which, uh, see that me, that just gives me more questions. Like, I, I want to know more in the sense that like, so he said that, so Perrin says something along the lines of- They like, get married at 15. Mon becomes a senator at 16. Okay, I need another time. 15 yeah. is when she took her gap year. She had a romance. We don't know if it was with Perrin. And then she went back to, to take her place in the Senate at 16. Now, previous sources said that she just re-entered the Senate in some capacity, but this explicitly states that she became Chandrilla's senator at 16. Also, does that mean her daughter's almost at the age where she needs 
to get married or will that get married? That is a horrifying realization. Oh yeah. Lita's only two years out. If yeah, if they if that is if, horrifying. Yeah, that's that is so a weird. horrifying realization. And Look, maybe she I, doesn't want I her like, to. Like, I like most of Shindrill and culture, but this part I don't like. <laughs> yeah, this is so random. It's like the one thing that you're like, ooh. This is um, okay. <laughs> I, I, I just had to throw in here a note shouting out the the mask drop uh, when she walks away. We saw it in the trailers, but it, it's even better with context. All right. So so my last note from this block um, is I want to talk about the shower sequence and not in the way that, that you might think. Um, so the shower sequence was specifically cited as something that was potentially deliberately invoking the images of actual camps under fascism and specifically the concentration camps and this was the point where i need to say that if you've noticed i've been kind of skipping over the historical like camps that people were put into under fascist regimes uh that's deliberate i don't have the necessary knowledge to speak to a topic that serious with any degree of of authority and i do not want to get any of my facts on that topic wrong i know normally i will i will come in with my history knowledge i know that it is playing into historical camps all over the world uh, as well as the american prison system i do not want to say try to cite any examples i just don't know uh or i just don't know with as much confidence to present on this show there may be other cases where historians who are star wars fans can look into it uh certainly uh i may bring it up later on if somebody who is better equipped than me to explain this to me explains it to me but for now that is why we're glossing over it and i picked this specific scene to bring it up because it is the most blatant uh the most like dehumanizing moment that these people go through it is the moment that uses the most imagery it is frankly one of the more uncomfortable little sequences to watch that's why we're not bringing up any of the history stuff is that it is a very 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 serious topic i don't have the necessary knowledge to really speak on it and i want to make sure that if i do speak on it later on that I get it right. So I I wanted to bring that up here. Kind of a downer ending to this long section. Just like the episode. <laughs> Just like the episode. On Ferrix, Bix and Brasso tend to the ill Marva, who fell while observing the former hotel, which the Empire has reappropriated as their headquarters. Meanwhile, Vel and Cinta have a reunion. Cinta reaffirms her commitment to the rebellion as well as her love for Vel. They watch Bix and Brasso opposite the street. Bix heads to the salvage yard shop to activate the secret radio transmitter. Yeah, so Bix is apparently taking care of Marva, which is badass. Very uh, sweet. Also, Brasso is helping take care of Marva, which is, again, badass. Very sweet. There's also some, some sort of indications in the way they talk about Marva that Marva might be deteriorating from old age, mentally. And I, I like that. that they they don't just come right out and say it. They're sort of subtly saying it. But it is a really horrifying, like, adult terror moment to, to watch someone you love start to lose a degree of control over their own thought processes. And that's something that's communicated really well by the writing here and the way that Bix and Brasso have their conversation outside of Marva's home about it. Meanwhile, lesbians... Lesbians. Oh my Lesbians. god, I love it. My so my much. note literally is, oh, they are very gay. Oh, so good. Oh my god. This Thank scene god. is so gay. Okay, so 
I know that we love on-screen kiss. Like that's that's cool and all, but I also love uh, I, I just that they're together. Like it just I it don't just think is. Think we're it. going to get more explicit <laughs> confirmation on screen that these two are a couple than them having an entire ass conversation about their relationship. Senta telling Vel that Vel loves her, and then later on we get. I'm, I'm skipping ahead of my notes, but we literally get like a shot of where it's Senta looking one direction and Vel looking the other direction and it fades between the two for a moment it looks like they're looking at each other like it's there it's there it's there and I, I love it I kind of understand too I'm I kind of understand that they didn't why they didn't put it in the marketing material I know they kind of wanted it to be a surprise um you know I wish I wish they'd say more now but I also understand that all of the marketing material that was done for the series, I do understand why they wanted to make this a surprise because it is a very nice surprise. It's a very I, delightful surprise to be in there. I really do like it. And it makes me want, like, I want them to just end up happy together by the end please, of this. I just please, need the, just need one please, good thing. Tony, this, please. Tony, please. I need them to be happy. If Tony Gilroy ruins this relationship for me, I'm going to riot. I truly, I will take to the streets. I, I, I love how conflicted of a character Vel is because we see just how conflicted she is in this scene where she's like, I, I don't want to leave Senta, but I, I know what I need to do and et cetera, et cetera. It, she's very interesting. She's not had a lot of direct like screen time, but they've done a lot with her every time she's on screen. Uh, and Faye Marseille is just absolutely knocking it out of the park. Uh, we also did get some sort of confirmation to her backstory. She is apparently a rich girl. What was that you just hummed? You said a rich girl. What? It's a Gwen Stefani song. Never mind. I'm a top. Oh my God. Okay. Well, for all of my other people out there who listen to the show, Rich Girl by Gwen Stefani. That's what I was doing. Okay. Do you think she's Lethan's daughter? I really think she's Lethan's daughter. I don't know. Like, I mean, not to jump ahead, but when they talk about her in the next scene, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, it's a nice theory. I just don't know if like that's, a thing i think he's she's just an employee honestly at this point like i don't know i like the idea that they would be you know that's his like daughter that he you know he, he kind of cares about but kind of not really like i don't know i i feel like uh his assistant seems more like his actual daughter and like is just pretending to be his assistant now at this point like i don't know it's weird i don't know because yeah we we do get a scene like there's a trailer shot of her talking to mon mothma later so I don't know what's going on. I'm sure all will be revealed. We have, Christ, we have one, two, three, four episodes left. All will be revealed in the next four episodes. <laughs> or or in the next 16, because we technically have 16 left That's in the whole series. That's true. Yeah, I, you see, it's weird knowing how much we have left of a show, like, versus, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes oh, God, like, yes, we have, we have, this is the first act, and then we get the second act, and in a year or two on coruscant clea receives a message from bix who is trying to find andor because his mother is ill clea informs luthan and after discussing about bell and Cinta, luthan reluctantly orders that the transmission be shut down back on ferrix bix reacts with frustration and later luthan flies into space 
so yeah they just they're talking yeah. about her and then they're like yep there they, you go well they're like oh villain sent to know what they're doing the the callousness with which they cut fer ferrix off at the end is is just like ferrix is a lost cause and it's interesting to parallel like what's going on with deidre and, and cyril at the beginning of the episode where in both cases there's a larger organization that is perfectly willing to cut Ferrix loose if it's not benefiting them. Nobody cares about Ferrix here. And I get Luthen's like idea. He's like, uh, we should probably try to keep this open because maybe, you know, Bix is the key. Like we can figure out what, you know, where Andor is. Like she's the one who's going to give us all the information. And then Cleo's just like, honestly, we can do this ourselves. Like why we don't, we don't need to keep doing this and involving other people. Like we got. Yeah. And like they've clearly not cut villain Senta off, but Luther is very much a guy that does not seem like he likes to let go of things like at all. He talks a big game, but there's certain things that he just does not seem to want to cut loose. And he seems to be starting to really obsess over Cassian. And we actually, something really interesting in the scene is we find out why he got Cassian involved. They desperately needed Aldani to work. That was it. He didn't see any potential in Cassian. He was just using him to get make sure Aldani went off without a hitch. And that's a very interesting way to reveal that. And it's also a very dark motivation for Luthen to where yeah he's just manipulating Cassian too to his own ends he never was planning to recruit him for any rebellion he just wanted his robbery to work uh we do get the fade shot of Velen Senta here I'm gonna shout that out uh love that shot maybe my favorite shot of the episode just make it your background of your laptop and you know your cell phone and whatever else we just maybe get a phone in case so my cell phone my cell phone is is two different images of Mon Mothma for my lock screen and home screen and the back of my computer background is the logo for dragon age dreadwolf stegra milo uh is a new planet um not appeared in canon nor legends before it is a place that exists at the narkina 5 imperial factory a prisoner commits suicide by jumping out of his cell onto the electrified floor on ferrix Bix watches a crowd gathering outside Repack's cell yard. Imperial officers have arrested Salman Pack after summoning him to the reappropriated hotel. The lead Imperial officer orders stormtroopers to disperse the crowd. The officer recognizes Bix, but she flees the scene. Yeah, we're we're not gonna go into the scene in tremendous detail, uh, except for me to point out once again that this shit has gotten insanely dark yeah i was gonna say we're, i mean we thought it was dark when they were even just talking, talking about this about topic it. and then and a guy like does it does it like, <laughs> jesus yeah we're we're not gonna go into it in any degree that would require uh, a, a trigger warning you know beyond knowledge of the fact that this is a thing that happens within the episode itself we're going to move on because i'm, I'm I personally i'm not addressing that right now uh, i i love the scene but i just can't talk about it uh, i would much rather talk about brasso being an absolute fucking legend i love brasso yeah so um we saw the packs uh they they wound up becoming very important um and then yeah brasso brasso's like bix you need to run and then like helps her get away and i'm like god man i love that man <laughs> well you know what's funny is it was giving me um it's, it's funny because like obviously bix and cassian have been a thing in the past and oh, brasso is clearly cassian's best friend or best childhood friend or whatever right Abby. oh they're they're bros they're right. tight i also feel like this is like 
the kind of thing where it's like your best friend and your ex-girlfriend could like get together because the thing that they have in common is you. And I feel like that's what could theoretically happen here. But the difference being Brasso is actually a good guy for Bix because he also cares about Cassian. And, and that's why they would work well together. Uh, I simply think that Cassian has two hands. That is my contribution to that topic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Luthen lands his ship at a partisan base on Segra Milo. Luthen asks Saul Guerrera if he was involved in the Aldani heist, but he neither confirms nor denies that he was involved. They begin to speak of new plans for rebel activity. While when Guerrera insists on working alone, Luthen tells him that he has got to change. Guerrera is unwilling to risk his people, telling him to find someone else to help with his new plan. Yeah, so, um, Saul motherfucking Guerrera. He's just randomly gonna show up. Saul Guerrera is here. He's here. Uh, do you want to talk about who is playing Saul Guerrera? Yes, so Forrest Whitaker, our Star Wars trifecta uh, actor himself. Yep. Playing the same character he has played in both a this Star dude, Wars movie and a TV show. This dude loves being for being Saw Guerrera. Forrest Whitaker fucking loves it. He has played him in Rebels. He has played him in Fallen Order. He has played him in Rogue One. And now he's played him in Andor. Um, I wow. really love the way he presents himself in this uh, show as Saw Guerrera only because he has clearly had the time now to really like study and do character work with this character in the sense that this is the best version of Sagrera we've seen so far because it's so perfectly like calculated at this point. Oh yeah, no, Forrest Whitaker knows Sagrera. Uh he has only not played Sagrera in two things, and that was the Clone Wars before Rogue One happened, and then the Bad Batch, where they wanted a different actor to kind of bridge the gap between the two. They didn't want an actor who just sounds like Forrest Whitaker. Uh Although I do, I do need to shout out um, someone else in the scene. Uh, the opening shot shows two tubes. Uh, two tubes is played by Aiden Cook, who we remember as Doctor Quadpaw and the KX unit. This guy is uh, just getting his paycheck for the show. He is, he is reprising his role as two tubes from Rogue One. Nice. He also Love played it. two tubes in Rogue One. I'd Love to see it. That's actually, I really like that character, um, and I hope that. <sighs> We see him again. I hope this is not just like a, this is the only Saw Guerrero you see. Um, I, I think there'll be more. I yeah? think there has to be more. Okay, good. Because there's, there's another it. scene from the trailer where Luthen and, and Saw are talking. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. That well, we have yet to see. I'm, I'm glad because I love Two Tubes um, and his brother uh, and uh, other Two Tubes. I don't even know what his brother's name is. <laughs> I know it's Two Tubes and Four Tubes. Uh, what is it? Or uh, like, it's like Greedo and Beto or whatever. It's like Benthic and let me check here. Yeah. I don't uh, wanna... It is Benthic and Ed Edrio. Edrio. Benthic okay, so and Edrio. I'm going to call him Four Tubes. Um, um, so two tubes and four tubes. <laughs> yeah, this is two tubes. Um, yes. I love he it. He is back. I love that he's back. He's such a fun character design. So this is the good writing I come to this show for. This this scene is incredible. 
I really, it was so hard for me to write the description of this scene because there's just so much good dialogue and stuff. Like it was hard for me to like simplify it down to just like what they're talking about. This is yet again, yet again. We have a scene where I'm just like, you know what my note is? The whole fucking scene. Go watch that. Watching, watching these two masters of their craft just talk to each other. Yeah. The best actors in the entire, well, yeah. Ooh. I don't even want to careful making that claim. I don't even want to say that because it's so hard. You've got Diego Luna who is going through a a trauma like thing right now with his face alone. You've got Genevieve O'Reilly who is in perfect control of every word that comes out of her mouth. Like these are the the four best actors in the show. (laughs) Fucking Kyle Solar with his unhinged twitching. I can't even. And then I I, I can't forget about Deidre either. There's so many good. Oh God. Nina. Nina Gold. You are a legend. You know how to cast. This show is so is so good. All the actors are so good. Uh, I I want to shout out a specific line: "Oppression breeds rebellion." Because I love that line so much. Um, and of course, Saw hates the Separatists. We remember what the Separatists did to Onderon. Of course, Saw doesn't want to work with the Separatists. You have no recollection of this, do you? You're, Bradley's like making faces in the Zoom call. I mean, he doesn't like working with other people. I know that. So that's about as he, far he as He specifically I... dislikes Separatists because they took over his home planet. Bradley. Ah, gotcha. And his sister or something died, right? Yeah. Like, it yeah. may be time for Bradley to rewatch The Clone Wars. I think so. I think I might. I, might I think we refresh. might be there. We will not be covered again on the show because we don't have time for that. Um, This is easily the best look at Luthen as a character that we have. I think this may be the most honest he's being thus far, where he's talking about, I'm a coward who believes that if we don't act now, the empire will not be able to be stopped i think that's a really interesting look at his character and and so we're starting to get some of those layers peeled back as to who he is also speaking of characters who are getting layers peeled back saul with the motherfucking i am the only one with clarity of purpose when he's talking about oh there's all these different groups who have all these different ideological things and my job is fight the empire He's very clear. That is it. Yep, he's very clear. My job is to fight the Empire, which is, of course, in direct conflict with Luthen, who wants all these groups to work together and to form a network, which is, God, I love that line. I love the scene. I love the writing. I love the acting. It it is two old guys talking to each other in a cave, and I love it. I love it. It's some of the best shit this franchise has ever done. Back on Ferrix, Bix is captured by Imperial officers. At the repurposed hotel, Deidre says that she wants Bix to see a tortured pack. After Bix sees Pack, Deidre introduces herself to Bix before an Imperial Guard ushers her towards the interrogation chair. Elsewhere on Narkina 5, Andor and his fellow prisoners continue assembling machinery. My literal only note for the Deidre scene is fucking hell, Deidre. She's so good in this scene. It, it, it scares you a little bit because you're, you're just like, she twists on a dime because she's like, oh, should we let her see the tortured prisoner? Yes, yes, just let her come in. It's fine. And then she comes in. Oh, why would you guys have him still here? Like, it blows my mind how good she's, that scene is. I've been warning people for episode upon episode upon episode just how good at her job she is. Yeah. And here it is. She's girl, but I fear she is girl boss a little too close to the sun. And like I told you, she's very Thrawn-like and where she can think like just on a dime. 
like that. And she is, she's terrifying. She is one of the best. I would say we should send her to the Chiss Ascendancy, but I don't think she deserves it. I would be interested in seeing like, I mean, obviously we don't know what happens to her because we haven't finished the series, but because we know that she's not in theoretically A New Hope, right? Like our Rogue One, we know that like, she's obviously not around or doing whatever it is involved with the Empire in this close vicinity. So I don't know, maybe she does go to the Chiss Ascendancy or something like, we don't know like <laughs> well because yeah. think about it what's thrawn doing right now what do we it wasn't one of our theories that thrawn could theoretically uh, show thrawn up is around thrawn is around right um, i don't think he's that him he's he's just i think getting to the rank of admiral i believe the events of rebel season one are happening happening right now right are happening right well they're yeah they're happening right now so we see the effects of the prd on rebel season one so they're and also in the service of the empire books so we're we're seeing them concurrently uh yeah so he's around admiralish rank i think uh i also want to want to bring up the doctor in the scene dr gorst only for the fact that dr gorst has a name and that's concerning because he's only in like a couple of shots of this scene so maybe he's i feel like dr gorst is going to play a more substantial role in the next two episodes okay uh and if he does we will bring up who's playing it but for now we need to move on to the final shot the final shot is so heartbreaking where it's like Cassian's been through all this trauma you know he's he's had to confront it and we see that hope seems to have finally died for him because he's just at his task he's working at his thing with no complaint is the most compliant we have ever seen Cassian the system has worked Cassian Andor has broken it's sad because it only took one episode <laughs> well, well <laughs> I guess one episode of his prison to do it well maybe I, well, I guess it's been a while he's been there for a hot minute you know so he's in there a month a month okay that's yeah uh, that'll do it you know and that's that's just where we end it was really sad too because like like you said before i don't like how it just kind of ends because we were stuck on that emotional down and i it's it's not in the same way that like for example empire works right where at the end of the movie you know there nothing has gone well for the heroes they're all in this bad place and that's a different kind of feeling versus this where it's like we're just emotionally drained by the end of this episode and it's very like yikes. it's so hopeless yeah there's just so no hopeless. hope whatsoever like and it's really sad on this episode anyway, i just don't know where it's going <laughs> who's responsible for this shit bradley uh directed by toby haynes we uh, remember toby haynes toby haynes is actually uh i wrote down he has the most episodes of the season uh that he's directing so he's got six total so that's gonna be very interesting he directed uh, uh episodes one through three right so he's got a total of six but yes he originally did that and then um i i didn't know i don't know if we've mentioned this before but i wrote it down just because did we mention that he's also like known for directing doctor who no we did not hang on let me pull him back up yeah because i don't know if we went like two oh yeah well he directed we went into that he directed the uh the reichenbach fall episode of sherlock but i don't think we mentioned that he directed some episodes of doctor who okay well i just uh, wanted to bring that up because i thought it was interesting that he did and then um yeah i recognize all these episodes too okay cool. uh they're all bangers gotcha because i knew you would you know the I, show, I know them so, yeah. i know them they're all bangers gotcha okay cool so i just thought that was interesting it was uh written by Bo Willimon. Uh, he is the third writer of this show. And Tell us about Bo Willimon's five writer credits on IMDb. 
Well, the one that I wrote that was significant was uh, House of Cards. Uh, yes. So that's a very, Willimon, very big one. Bo Willimon has five acting credit or five writing credits on IMDb. But of those five writing credits, one of them is House of Cards, which he created and wrote, by my count, 23 episodes of House of Cards, uh, the American version. He wrote The Ides of March which is an absolutely fantastic movie. Uh, he created the first TV series and he wrote the screenplay for Mary Queen of Scots. The minute I saw they were bringing in the House of Cards guy, I was like, oh, his episodes are going to slap. They're going to fucking slap. And they did. This episode slaps. So any final thoughts on this downer of an episode? <laughs> uh, my final thought is that um, I need a drink. Uh, and a very long nap, and um, the American prison system is fucked, and we need more attention and reform in that sector of American politics. What about you, Bradley? What are your final thoughts? You know what? I couldn't have said it better myself. You know, I just uh, mailed in my ballot from Hawaii because that's where I am because I got it sent to me here. And you're right. We need to change things. And this oh, episode... your, state is, your state is allowing that. <laughs> right. I know. They're um, letting your home state's letting you get away with that. Ooh, yeah, I'm surprised. I, I'm shocked as well. But you know what? If this episode taught me anything, is that nothing can be worse than space prison. So, <laughs> except know. for American prison. <laughs> <coughs> I choked on my water. Wow. <laughs> no, we're. You know what? I'm just gonna roll. We're just gonna roll the social. We're gonna let the episode in there. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Gold Squad Gaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Gold Squadron Gaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. Whoops, I forgot, the, I forgot to put the title on here. You forgot to put the title. I thought you could pronounce wah, wah. the title. Well, no, because I copy and paste everything. And so I just, I didn't even put episode eight. I, I just did it off the top of my head. Um, What's the title called again? It's called like Nick. It's Nakina, Nakina five. Nakima five. Nakina five. Nakina five. Nakina five. Nakina five. Nakina. Okay, <clears throat> let me try that again.